Well, I want to start this evening with an apology. You're going to have to answer some questions from some people because uh, Wednesday night I spoke in Dallas and uh, my private pilot, Brad Taylor, took me in his plane and people were asking, what do they pay you that you can have an airplane and a pilot fly you over here? So you're going to be asking or answering some questions. Brad, uh, thank you for that, and he's going to do that again uh, for me in August. That sure is nice to get home at like 9.30 or 10 instead of 1 in the morning from those speaking engagements. But that's as close to a televangelist as I'm probably going to get. So uh, not a $54 million plane, but it's close, wasn't it, Brad? Flew like one anyway. You know, when you were, when you were born, you were pretty much just a blob that did nothing but cry and eat and go to the bathroom. But you grew, you matured, you developed, you started rolling over, maybe you started sitting up on your own, then you started pulling up on the furniture, then you got brave and started taking a few steps, you wobbled, you fell down many, many times, but you got back up and you continued to walk until you got to where you're at today, where some of you can run and, and, and do some agility things, and I mean, you're really, really fleet of foot. But you fell a lot of times. And some of you probably have scars from your childhood where you fell and hit the corner of the coffee table or something like that. Even today, even as mature adults, we fall down a lot, don't we? And sometimes it's just silly. We're, we, we miss a step or we, we fall off the curb or whatever, right? How many of you have ever fallen and said, you know what, that's it, no more walking. I'm done. I, I can't risk it anymore. I'm not, I'm not walking ever again. No, obviously you kept getting back up because you weren't going to stay down just because you fell. Even if it was really silly, even if you fell numerous times, especially as a baby, you got back up and you tried it again because walking was important to you. And there are countless individuals who have stopped walking, unfortunately. They have quit walking the Christian walk. They have abandoned the walk of discipleship. And we've got to get something out of the way right from the beginning. As soon as we become a disciple, something that needs to be told and something that needs to be expressed openly and honestly is that we will all fall. Every one of us. And we will fall numerous times. But falling is not the issue. The issue is, will you get back up? Failure can be fatal or it can be fuel, and you've got to decide which one it's going to be. Let me ask you this. You ever had an upset stomach? You ever eaten something that made you sick? Did you swear off food? Did you say, I'm never eating again? I can't go through this ever again? No, obviously not. You ever been outside? You've been stung by a bee? Stung by a wasp? Did you quit going outside? Did you say, I'm never going outdoors again because I got stung by a bee? You ever bit your tongue? Did you stop eating? Did you stop talking? Just as silly as those questions are our excuses for stopping the walk. We're all going to fail. Failure is just a part of being a disciple. It's part of our daily walk with God. The question is not, will you fail? The question is, what are you going to do about your failure? Remember Walter Payton? One of, if not the greatest running back of all time. Played for the Chicago Bears. 
Walter Payton amassed over 16,000 yards rushing in his career. That's over nine miles. What's even more amazing about that is he did it after getting knocked down every 4.6 yards. Every 4.6 yards he got tackled and yet he got up and he kept running because that was his job. That's what he loved to do because getting tackled doesn't mean that that's the end. You get up, you keep moving forward, right? Here's what bothers me. From a biblical perspective, we often frame perseverance as if it's just getting by. You know, you just endure. You just hang on and do the best you can until Jesus comes back or until you die. But that's not what perseverance is. Perseverance is endurance coupled with the diligent resolve to aim higher. I'm not just surviving, I'm thriving. I am doing my part as a child of God to not only walk the walk, but to aim higher, to to walk better than I ever have before and not allow failure to keep me down. And the reason why we can think that way and live that way is because we have God on our side. You remember Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 35? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So perseverance is made easier when you realize that you have God on your side. It still may be difficult, but you know that this race ends with Jesus at the finish line, and God is on your side all the way. We can persevere knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Notice Proverbs 24, 16. For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. You notice here that there's falling. The righteous will fall. There's no argument there. You you can't debate that. The righteous will fall. Not only that, they fall more than once. But it's not about falling. It's about getting back up again. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Habakkuk. I'm going to look at a man that faced situations very similar to what we face in this day and time. Habakkuk is a very interesting prophet from the standpoint that he didn't rebuke Israel. He was not speaking on behalf of God to Israel. No, Habakkuk is simply looking at the situation around him. He's looking at the world that he's living in, and he's asking a couple of questions. The first one is why. Why, God? Why have you allowed the idolatry and the immorality and the injustice to run rampant? Why haven't you done something? Why have you allowed so much suffering and trepidation? Notice chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Habakkuk wants action. He's asking why, and he wants God to answer him. He wants him to do something. It says, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, how long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. 
A major theme in the book of Habakkuk is that question, how long, O Lord? How long? How long are you going to allow this to go on? I know you see it. I know you know it's going on. How long are you going to allow it to take place? And the Lord answers, and it's probably not the answer that Habakkuk wanted. Verse 5, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. God is going to do something about the corruption of Israel. And you know what he's going to do about it? He's going to send the Babylonians to do something about it. He's going to send them in to take them captive. He is going to punish them with the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is saying, wait a minute, how's that better? That's not better. That's worse. I mean, come on, God, give me something that I can work with here. But of course, God has a plan. And the carrying out of that plan is something that Habakkuk needed to trust in. Chapter 2, verse 1, the prophet likens himself to a guard standing post and waiting for the Lord to give him an explanation. And God certainly gives him an explanation. Notice chapter 2, verse 2 and following. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. So God tells Habakkuk to take out a tablet and write down the vision that he is going to give him. And this vision is one that explains why he is doing what he is doing. Not that he owed Habakkuk an explanation, but he's giving him one nonetheless. And he tells the prophet that even though he uses a corrupt nation like Babylon to bring his people into compliance, that doesn't mean that Babylon is going to get off the hook. That doesn't mean that Babylon and that evil, wicked nation is going to skirt justice. God's going to punish them. He is using them to inflict harm upon his people, to bring them into obedience, but it doesn't mean that they're going to get away with it for all eternity. And from this point we see that God elaborates on his promise to bring justice, to rain down justice upon every evil and wicked nation by pronouncing a series of five woes. And these woes focus on the oppressive injustice of nations like Babylon. The first two woes have to do with the treatment of the poor. Creditors getting rich off of astronomically high interest rates. The wealthy gaining their wealth through undue means, through crookedness, getting rich off the backs of poor people. The third woe deals with slave labor and treating human beings like animals, threatening them with violence when they don't keep up with the quotas. The fourth woe is an indictment against leadership. While others are suffering in slavery and from poverty, they're getting drunk and they're partying, they're spending their wealth on booze and sex. And the fifth woe exposes the idolatry that had defined nations like Babylon, 
when money and power and national, national security are your gods, then it's naturally going to be true that God gets pushed out of the equation. Now, these things that are mentioned here are not unique to Babylon, but this message that is given to Habakkuk is one that answers his question, maybe not in the way that he particularly wanted it answered, but given the human condition, most nations made up of humans will become like Babylon. And so God's response to Habakkuk is really a response to all generations from that point forward who must live in a corrupt place. And so we put ourselves in Habakkuk's shoes. Have you been there? Have you been in a situation where you've been surrounded by wickedness? Where you've struggled to understand what God is doing? With your finite mind, you've tried to grasp what an infinite God is doing. Maybe you have prayed, why God or how long, O oh Lord? Have you been in that kind of darkness or maybe surrounded by that kind of darkness? If so, just know that God's response to Habakkuk is a response to us as well. God will punish evil and injustice. Any nation that operates like Babylon will be destroyed, and that's rather scary, isn't it? Because you know where I'm going with this. How many of you, when you read through those woes with me, said, this is America. This is us, is it not? Is there injustice in this country? You better believe it. Is this a full-blown Babylon? Well, maybe not quite yet. But we do share some of the same traits. Is there crookedness among our leadership? Without question. I don't mean to be all doom and gloom, but I think when you read through these woes, I think you see that we are looking in a mirror in some ways. Again, I love this nation. I, I do not understand the concept of ungrateful American. But at the same time, we have to admit our flaws and we have to admit our transgressions. Do you think that God still brings down haughty nations or nations that operate like those did back in Habakkuk's time? I don't see any reason why not to believe that. So what does that mean for us, right? Is God trying to tell us something? Is this something that we need to take to heart? Notice Habakkuk 3, verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. What does Habakkuk do when he sees all the immorality and injustice around him? You know what he does first and foremost? He prays. He prays. In the face of impending doom, the prophet prays that God will display mercy in the midst of his power. And it's as if, it's as if Habakkuk is saying, I, I know tough times are coming. I know it's going to get difficult. But I trust in you, God. Please don't wipe us all out. And then notice verse 13. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Selah. Selah means pause. Reflect, meditate on what it was just said. God's going to have the last word. And Habakkuk knows that. 
But within his prayer, we see Habakkuk holding on to a promise. He is confident that God can save his people, that God works. And when he confronts evil, he saves the faithful. In verse 13, Habakkuk also mentions your anointed. This is a reference to a king in the line of David. So Habakkuk is using the Exodus story of past image of future Exodus for God's people where Jehovah will once again defeat evil and bring down the Pharaohs of the world. At the same time, he will bring justice to all. He will rescue all those who are oppressed. And this is where hope enters into the picture. You know, when you read through the Minor Prophets, you see a theme here, and you see that these Minor Prophets are introducing destruction, that God's judgment is coming, but there's always an introduction of hope as well. That at the end of all, there's a future promise, that God is still at work, that God hasn't given up on His people. Notice how this, how this book of Habakkuk ends in verse 16. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound of my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. And in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Habakkuk knows that God will keep his promise. He's saying, I get it. The Babylonians are going to suffer and and they're going to attack us. They're going to punish us. We're going to suffer. Eventually they're going to suffer. Message received. But the prophet says, I'm going to wait patiently. I'm going to let God operate on his time. Verses 17 through 19, it says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet, and makes me walk on my high places. In the midst of famine or drought or war or whatever may take place, Habakkuk says that I will choose joy. The word here, rejoice, literally means jump for joy. How? How are you going to jump for joy? Did you see the things that he described here? I mean, this is an epic famine. He's talking about an economic recession like no other. Ancient Israel was an agricultural society, and there's going to be no food, no sheep, no cattle. I mean, what are you going to do? I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to jump up and down for joy. What do you do when your investments are completely wiped out? What do you do when that 401k disappears? What do you do when the stock market crashes? What do you do when, when certain things around you that you place so much security and faith in are, are, are taken away? How do you respond? How do you deal with? How do you survive? I mean, what if you lose your job? What if you lose your spouse? What if you run out of food? What if you have no water to drink? What, what if you can't pay your bills? What if the doctor says there's nothing we can do? What if you wind up in prison for your faith? What then? Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Could you do that? I mean, you want to talk about worship? 
You, you want to define worship or you want to look at what it means to be a true worshiper? How about this? Can you go to God and worship God when everything around you is falling down and say, yet I will exalt the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation? Habakkuk's story comes full circle, doesn't it? He began by crying out to God and asking him, why, how long, O Lord? And then he concludes with the realization that no matter what happens, God is in control. And I will trust him. I will find joy in the God of my salvation. And so that question for you is, how about you? Will you find that you can rejoice even when everything surrounding you calls for you to be in doom and gloom? Will you rejoice? Can you exalt the Lord when everything around you is falling apart? I think a, a troubling, troubling thing that I've noticed about American Christians is they tend to be all in when things are good. I mean, you look at the Facebook posts and things like that. God is good. Hallelujah. Why? Well, because I have everything I want. Is God good when you don't have everything you want? God is good because I have a great family, I have a great job, and everything's working out in my favor. Is God still good when things don't work out in your favor? Unfortunately, many times people stop walking the walk of faith. And they abandon their God really quickly. They're no longer all in when things start to fall apart. But folks, here's something you got to understand. Sometimes the fig tree doesn't bud. And sometimes there are no grapes on the vine. Sometimes the olive crop fails. Sometimes the fields don't produce a crop. Sometimes there are no sheep in the pens. And sometimes there are no cattle in the stalls. What then? Are you going to give up on God? Or like Habakkuk, will you say, I will patiently wait and I will rejoice? Folks, we need a big God. And I think too many times people give up the walk of faith because their God is too small or they've invested in things that were not godly. Like Habakkuk, do you pray and do you trust God's timing and God's planning? Think about that for a moment. Think about what trusting God meant for Habakkuk. What did that mean for him? Well, it meant suffering. It meant tribulation. Things were going to get worse before they got better. And it might mean that for us as well. It might take a long time. It took a while for the things to play out in Habakkuk's time. It took a while for that hope and that restoration to come to the forefront but it might be exactly what we need. And it might be exactly God's plan for it to play out that way. You know, I think about Isaiah chapter 6, and I think about how, you know, we pull out that one, one verse there where, where Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. But the whole setting around that is Isaiah in a vision is being caught up into the throne room and there was concern at this time because the king, Uzziah, was a great king and he had reigned for many years and everything was prosperous, everything was great and the people were concerned. Isaiah the prophet was concerned. What now? We've had good times. We've had prosperity. What's going to happen? And basically the message in Isaiah chapter 6 is don't forget who's really on the throne. And so we look around us and we get upset and we get, and we get concerned, and rightfully so to some degree, but it doesn't matter who's in the White House. 
God's on the throne. It doesn't matter what's going on around you when God is on the throne, right? That doesn't mean you don't have to be concerned. It doesn't mean that you have to just turn a blind eye or not be involved even. But understand, in all your worry and all your angst, a king is on the throne. So don't put all of your efforts and all of your stock and all of your faith in something that's not going to be here in the end anyway. God is in control. We have to trust him. Whatever the future holds, no matter how bad things get, there is hope. No matter who sits on the throne here on an earthly throne, we know who is sitting on the throne in heaven. And no matter how many earthquakes or tornadoes or tsunamis may come, no matter how bad the news may get, no matter what the doctor may say, at the end of the day, None of these things can conquer us, and none of these things can separate us from the love of God. And so, as modern-day Habakkuk's, we say this, Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet, and makes me walk on my high places. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Like Habakkuk, many of us ask the question, why? Many of us wonder how long we see the immorality around us. We see the injustice taking place. Lord, we are sorry for for what our nation has done, what the world has done. We are sorry that there are so many that thumb their nose at you, so many that reject you, so many that live in open defiance toward you. God, we pray that we can make a difference in this world and that we can trust in your timing, that we can allow you to be in control and that above all else, we can be a light in a dark world doing our number one responsibility, which is preaching and living the gospel. Thank you so much for loving us and thank you so much for hope. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Perhaps in your daily walk with God, you've, uh, you've had some questions, and maybe at some point you've veered off track. Maybe you've decided that it was too hard. Maybe you've allowed failure to beat you down, or maybe, maybe there's some circumstances going on in your life, and you're wondering how to pray with you. love to help you the way that we can. I pray that you take advantage of the opportunity to to answer the invitation. You know, I say this quite often, you know, you don't necessarily have to come forward. I mean, there's, there's other ways you can answer the invitation, but let us help you. The important thing is that you don't leave here without being right with God. So if you need something tonight, we can help you in any way in your daily walk. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?